Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free fitness to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. This is the Secret Library Podcast. And I can't believe it, but we are at season nine. My guest this week is Joe Loring Fisher. Joe is an artist, illustrator, author, and graduate of Cambridge School of Arts, MA in children's book illustration. She lives with her husband and youngest daughter in the beautiful city of Bath, England. She loves both the city and the countryside and enjoys creating images using a range of materials, including collage, ink, paint, and printmaking. Much of her inspiration comes from observing the natural world and everyday life. She's excited by the scope of subjects that children's books cover, from lighthearted to tackling the challenges we all face. She sometimes favors difficult sub- uh, subject matter, softened by the use of chosen materials. She has written and illustrated the Carnegie-nominated Just Like You from Otterberry Books, Wolf Girl, Francis Lincoln, and Taking Time from Lantana Publishing. She has also illustrated Carnegie-nominated Rainbow Hands by Mamtanani from Lantana Publishing and Maisie Scrapbook by Samuel Narr, also from Lantana Publishing. I wanted to include a conversation about children's books because it is the foundation of how we all begin to read. And we haven't been as thorough in our coverage of this important part of literature More recently, I've also been getting questions about the process of publishing children's books, and I wanted to bring Jo on because she has knowledge both from the author side as well as the illustrator side of the process. Also, because it is just so weird and a magical coincidence, I have to share how Jo and I met, which was recently in Bath, England. I was seeking out the wonderful Persephone books, and as I walked up to the store, I saw a woman crossing the road in the most beautiful dress. And I thought to myself, I think I know what shop that dress comes from. And I sort of set it aside. I might have mentioned it to my husband that I know where she got that dress. Then, several hours later, after wandering through a park, I found myself in the shop that I thought the dress came from. And there was the woman in the dress. And I ended up trying on the dress and getting one myself. And through the process of having a conversation about it, I discovered that Joe was an author and illustrator. And I knew that the reason I had spotted her in the street in this lovely dress was because she had to come on the show. It is truly amazing to me how we can connect with each other in the world because of books and how the presence of a bookish person can just suck me in like a magnet. And as a result, I'm especially delighted to introduce Joe and share the conversation we had about children's books. Hi, Joe. Thank you so, so much for coming on. Hi, Caroline. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. It's exciting. It's it's a treat. And in particular, I think that 
Given that you work in the children's book arena, this is a piece that we have perhaps, I don't want to say neglected, but we haven't included as much as we could on the show. And I think it's important that the children's book sphere be included in our discussion about publication because so many people don't know how this process works. And so I thought we could start just with how did you get into children's book authorship? I mean, I know you wanted to do it given the degree you did. Yeah. But how did this happen? So, um, so I did various things before I actually went and did my BA. Um, I was a nurse for a bit. I was in personnel management for a bit. So I did a few bits and pieces beforehand. Um, and then I decided to go and do my BA, which I did at what was Norwich School of Art and Design um, back in the day. Um, and I did a year of fine arts. Um, and then I did two years of illustration. Um, I graduated at, in whoa, 2001, I think, or 2000, one or the other, can't remember. Um, <laughs> I've got a large family. I've got four kids. So very much kind of concentrated on them. It's very difficult to actually get any work um, in the meantime. So I did various other jobs working for the NHS, working with um, in a specialist palliative care unit. I was a childminder for a bit. So kind of biding my time, raising my children and, and earning some money and as much as I could doing a bit of art. And then in... 2014 I just googled and you I think doing my BA and having children I realized I wanted to be a kids book illustrator Mm. and the fact that you can use your imagination and it's just such a good application for arts Um, and I'm, I'm really interested in the artistic side of it as well not just kind of kicking out books for kids that and that's the area particularly that fascinated me really um because, you know, not only is it an introduction to uh, stories for children and themes and subjects, it's also an introduction to art. Um, so I started kind of researching that. I had, um, during my BA, lots of um, illustrators that I really loved. Um, people such as Sara Finelli, um, Lisbeth Verger. Um, and I was very interested in European illustration in particular. Um, and I still am. I find that um, probably more cutting edge than the British slash American market. I find it more exciting and more interesting. Um, and I'd love to be published in Europe at some point. So, yeah, that would be good. We're putting it out there right now. We're putting it out there. It's plans, plans for the future. Um, anyway, so I Googled um, MA in Children's Book Illustration and came up with the MA in Children's Book Illustration at Cambridge School of Art. Um, and got into that. So from 2014 to 17, I did the MA, a part-time MA in children's book illustration there, which was extremely hard, <laughs> nearly broke <laughs> me, but I'm extremely glad I did. Um, yeah, I made some lovely friends through doing that as well. Um, and then after that, um, uh, the course takes people who would like to go to the Bologna Book Fair or their work. I didn't actually attend it. Um, and my work was seen by a few different publishers there, and you get the contact details and stuff. So my first piece of work was actually by an, um, an education, um, I can't think how to describe them. They're called Think Equal, 
and they have developed a whole education program around empathy and kindness and values and kind of educating children in, in that way globally. So they approached me and the money wasn't very good at all, but I thought, give something back. I'm interested in what you're doing. It's right up my street. And um, I thought, yeah, I'm going to do it. It's a body of work. It's experience. So I did that. And that book was called Kitchy's Moccasins, which is quite mm. a sweet little book. Um, and I did that mainly in kind of hand-cut collage. Um, and that, funnily enough, has gone on to be made at, just for their programme, um, a little um, animation, which Stephen Fry read out. So I was very excited. Wow. <laughs> Say my name. It was great. Um, yeah, I didn't write that story. I just illustrated that one. So that was my first thing. Um, and then, let me think, then I was approached by Lantana Publishing, which was in its quite early days. And again, they were kind of um, focusing more on diverse books and um, I think children seeing themselves in their books, something around that line um, is their motto. So I illustrated a book called um, Maisie's Scrapbook um, by mm -hmm. um, an author called um, Samuel Nahr. That was my first book. Then I wrote Taking Time for Them, which is about, it's kind of marketed and it kind of fits well into the mindfulness category. But it was, for me, it was about connecting people and children across the world with the things that are very similar across the world, if you see what I mean. So every spread's a different child in a different country and they have a little something that they collect and they all gather it together. And at the end, they all kind of meet up and they all have a different object. Um, but the idea for that was that, I, you know, a child in Nepal could be looking at a spider in the same way as a child in England could, for example. So it's that kind of thing, about connections, really. Um, and then when I was actually on the MA, I wrote a story called Just Like You, which was about a refugee. Um, and I had that published by Otter Barry Books, um, which is an indie um, British publisher. Janessa Otter Barry used to work for Francis Lincoln years ago and then set up her own company. So I did that for them and I got a Carnegie nomination for that, which was really amazing, really thrilling. Oh, great. Yeah. And around about the same time, I then was working on Wolf Girl with Francis Lincoln mm. Publishing. Um, so I did that as so, Obviously, then lockdown happened. So some of these books came out during lockdown, which was beyond frustrating. But anyway, it's what it is. Um, and then I was approached again by Lantana to illustrate a book called Rainbow Hands, which I finished probably a couple of years ago now. So that was the last one that I did. And I've taken a bit of a pause. Um, I did quite a lot of work. I mean, six books in you know, a handful of years was actually quite a lot of work to do. And I needed to yeah. pause. I lost my dad. Um, I really felt a little bit drained. So stepped aside. Um, but I'm literally about to start um, a five book series with an American publisher. Yeah, so it's, it's an education publisher. Um, so not commercial in, it's commercial, but it's not in out there in mm -hmm. bookshops as such. But it's um, a really interesting project about mindfulness again. Um, so kind of up my street, really. So that's where I'm at. And I've been kind of in the past year or so kind of developing a new way of working and um, doing a lot more printmaking and mm. slowly kind of getting back into it that way. So that's me in a nutshell, really. That's incredible. Yeah. The, 
So I'm, I'm, I have so many questions, but I think just to start in terms of the most helpful information for everyone to have from the beginning is mm. every book is different, of course, but in general, is there a flow that you've noticed that a children's book goes through in terms of the stages between there being an idea and it's going to be a book to the point when it's published? Yeah, I mean... I mean, for me, I mean, I, obviously I can mainly speak from my own experience. Of course. Um, for me, it's very often an idea will come in. Like Wolf Girl, for example, was an mm -hmm. idea um, about a little girl. Um, she was based on my daughter, Safi, who's now 21, but she was little at the time. And um, there was no story, but I knew I wanted to have wildlife in it. And my brother at the time was living in Georgia in the States. Their garden was literally the forest where my nephew used to spend loads of time. He still does. He's 21 as well, but he spends a lot of time in the forest and now. Um, but he once saw a wolf and a bear and an owl all together. So those characters kind of came into my head. Um, and the book's dedicated partly to Safi, my daughter, and partly to Brendan, my nephew. Um, and, yeah, so for me, an idea might come in and dribs and drabs, um, which I then quite often, I think part, part of what has um, given me a bit of a break or I found it a little bit harder in the last couple of years to make work is the fact that I moved from the countryside. I used to live in Wiltshire and live, lived on Salisbury Plain, um, which I absolutely loved and really connected with, walked there every day, twice a day, did lots of writing on my phone, very inspiring. And I moved to Bath um, and the city. Um, I mean, I like Bath, but it's not as good for me creatively. It's very frenetic. There's, there's not the quiet breathing space where I can think and process. But at the time when I wrote Wolf Girl, I was, I was living um, in Wiltshire. Um, and I would just find walking and kind of thinking about it, the story kind of coming in. And then I saw um, Claire at... Um, who was the commissioning editor, I think she's senior commissioning editor at Francis Lincoln. And she really loved the kind of the concept and some of the drawings I've done. So we worked together. I mean, every book that I've done has been a bit different, really. Mm. So obviously the first couple were written by other people. Um, and then you kind of liaise with those, with the publisher, a little bit with the author um, to, to work out kind of how you're going to approach it. Um, just like you, obviously I wrote myself and I spoke to Janessa Otterbarry and that came about quite slowly, but that was more of a kind of complete story that I'd done. Um, and we altered it a little bit. For example, it was a boy when I, when the, in the first version, um, but I changed it to a girl um, and worked with her and the designer on that one. Um, and then um, taking time, I just wrote it for Lantana. I just said, okay, I'm going to write you a story. And I literally went out and I was walking my dog and I in Wiltshire and I was looking up at the trees and I saw a flock of birds and that sparked it. And I just immediately wrote it and sent it to Alice Curry, who's CEO there now. And, um, you know, we worked on it together and, and produced the book. So all of them differently, but I've got loads of ideas, loads of stories that I've written and I'm writing and that are at different stages as well. So all kind of stored on the Mac in the cloud. <laughs> so, so yeah, yeah and then keep them um, safe. Yeah, so it can really, really vary. I mean, in terms of what they're looking for, um, for a picture book, which is what I generally work on, that's 
thought mostly to be 12 spreads, um, as in 12 spreads inside, a spread being the whole page as you open it out. Mm-hmm. Um, 16 altogether when you factor in the cover and the end papers and, yeah, um, and no more than 500 words. Now, just like you is 75, I was told. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't count them. Somebody else counted them and told me. Um, yeah. So it, it, it really can vary, but obviously you need to have something that's, you know, has a bit of excitement in it, but also kind of quite gentle because it's children. You don't necessarily have to resolve things fully. It really does depend. And to be honest, the publishers quite often change what they're looking for, um, have an idea of what they're looking for or don't have an idea. It, it varies so massively per publisher and I think in more recent times again it's kind of changed quite a lot in in terms of what they're looking for um, and who they want to be writing for them so it's a challenge there are there are a lot of challenges there for sure yeah it's not an easy it's not an easy industry and the fact that it's for children don't be mistaken and think oh it's for kids it's all cutesy cutesy it's not it's blimming hard it is it's a hard job um Yeah, and it can really knock your confidence as well. You need to be able to kind of pick yourself up because, like with all publishing, there are a lot of rejections um, and that can feel very personal. So you have to be in a good place mentally to cope with that and know that that is part of the industry and just part of how it goes, like it is with all the creative arts, you know. And we all have a different idea of what we like and what we don't like in terms of work as well. So, yeah, you're battling against quite a lot of different things. Absolutely. And I think that one thing that I think is important for people to know, so maybe you can get into this a little bit. Mm. How was the process and who ultimately decided that you were going to be the illustrator on the books where you illustrated them, yet someone else had written them? Well, with all of them, it was already written. And then I was approached by the publisher. So you don't, I think what publishers really like, and I haven't had any training in writing. So my MA was an MA in children's book illustration specifically, but we did write, some of us wrote and wrote our own things and got a little bit of guidance on that. Um, But generally, I think ideally publishers for picture books at least like you to be able to do the whole package. I think that's, mm. and it's more fun. I mean, I like working on my own writing because, you know, it's all coming from the same place in your head and you're, you know, but also illustrating for somebody else is quite interesting too. And it's nice having the freedom. I'm not one to have, I wouldn't want a publisher saying, right, on the right hand side of that page, you're going to have this, 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 that doesn't work for me. No, <laughs> I can imagine. You know, it's got to, you know, I'll do it my way. Not absolutely, you know, it's in discussion, obviously, but I think the illustrator needs to be allowed to have a bit of breathing space to come up with something. I think most of us feel like that. So, yeah. And it's not so it's normally in discussion. Right. Mm. So from what I understand, because I think this came as as comes as a surprise to people who write the story, that even if they like to have a writer illustrator, say someone like you, who could do the whole thing, 
Mm. Is it necessarily considered desirable if a writer comes in and says, I've written this story and I have an illustrator that I want to illustrate the, the story? I think it would probably very much depend on the status of that writer. I think mm. probably if a well-known writer came along and said, hey, I know about this person, perhaps it would be looked at. But you do get a lot of people saying, oh, yes, um, or I write children's book, or I've written a children's book, or I do these illustrations, and it's not quite necessarily what would be published if you get my drift. Yeah. And um, so really, I think probably, I mean, it's slightly difficult for me to answer that because if I'm going to be writing it and I approach a publisher, obviously I'm going to want to illustrate it. Of course. Um, but you, I think probably from a writer's point of view, you don't go looking because I, sometimes I've been approached by a writer and said, oh, can you illustrate this and how much would you charge? And it's like, no, it doesn't work that way. That, that, that isn't what happens at all. Um, so you as a writer would go to the publisher. If they liked your book, they would probably have a, um, a little bank of illustrators or people they're aware of and they like to use. They will probably have a vision in their heads as well of how they want the illustrations to look um, and would have an idea about that. And I think probably the author does get consulted about it all, but generally it would be the publisher that does that. And then you'll be paid by the publisher, you get paid in advance, and then you'll get a percentage of royalties once that um, advance has been paid back, basically. Yeah. So when there have been enough sales that your advance has been met, then you start getting a percentage of the royalties. So the same as the writer. Yeah. For the illustrator. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So it's interesting too, because for at least if we're talking about a UK and US market, I know that Canada is different. Australia is different. Europe is a whole different ballgame. Mm. But if you're writing for even middle grade or adults, you're generally going to need an agent. But yeah from all of the stories that you've shared, you went directly to the publisher. So I'm wondering how, is that a usual way to go or, or how does it generally work with the story? I did have an agent for a short while, say a short while, a couple of years maybe. It didn't go so well for me, I have to say. Mm. Um, yeah. I. It's really difficult because if you've got an, an agent that really works well for you and you've got a good rapport with them, I think it can be really good because they can give you, ideally, a bit of support and a bit of encouragement, help you work on, you know, edit stories and that kind of thing. If you've got an agent who does that, I didn't. And they obviously have a relationship with various publishers. So if you can get somebody who's good and you're happy with that, and some people, you know, are happy being spoken for. Mm. I actually quite, I don't really like somebody else speaking for me. I'd mm. ra much rather meet that person and speak to them and show them my work and speak for myself. In terms of things like contracts, I think it can be really useful. And obviously, if you have got lots of work, having somebody actually going out there and getting more work for you, I should think is probably really helpful. Um, but for me, I personally found it more stressful than, yep. than if I not had one because it gave me another layer of frustration. <laughs> <laughs> and it so, sounds like it is possible to connect with 
a children's book publisher in a way that say, I can't just show up at Penguin and say, I've got a nice idea for a novel. Let's chat mm-hmm. about it. They'll say, what are you doing, lady? Go find an agent and go home. Yeah, it probably is a little bit freer in illustration compared to writing. Um, although, I mean, the agent I have was a literary literary agent, and I would probably look to have that rather than an illustration agent if mm. I were to look for... Um, yeah, I'm still really... I'm unsure. I've, I, think, I think I've had not great experiences and not great experiences of, of approaching um, agents and then being really, really enthusiastic about my work. And yeah, it's just great. Send me more, send me more. And then nothing. And yeah. then you chase them and, oh, I just decided it wasn't my cup of tea. There's a lot of that going on. And there can be, if you go to meet publishers, I've been to meet publishers before and they've, you know, it's taken me a long time to get there. Obviously, fairly costly and I've literally been given about 20 minutes and rushed through and out the door and then no response afterwards and actually that's not a great way of treating people it's like going for an interview and just being ignored afterwards and not being told if you've got the job or not it's not great so yeah it's it's not an easy industry no I don't think it is and so I'm I'm curious what what drives you to continue it's just inside me. I can't put it down. Mm. I think I'm, I'm quite an ambitious person um, and I'm just driven and I love doing it. You know, I love actually writing and I love making the work. Um, it's really satisfying, you know, and when you have people contact you and say, you know, how much your story is meant to them and meant to their child, that's a really lovely thing. You know, it's very motivating, but I just enjoy it. I, I enjoy making the work. I enjoy the process. It's hard work, but it's very enjoyable. And I just can't put it down. I couldn't not do it. Even though I've had a break, it's always been my intention to go back to it. I've never been like, well, I have had moments where I've just thought, I'm not doing this anymore. I've had enough. I think all of us have felt like that. Just because it's so hard and you can feel so vulnerable. Um, and And that's difficult. Nobody likes feeling like that. And sometimes you do just need to have a break. We can't constantly turn out our best work. Well, maybe some people can't, but I can't. But I think I think also, sorry, some people can, but I can't. Yeah. Um, but I think also it's important to remember or try to remember not to compare yourself to other people and other people's successes, because it's very easy to look at social media and think, oh, that person's doing really well or, oh, they're constantly churning out of work. Oh, you know, oh, they're doing so much better than I am. And I think that's it, that can be really deflating and you have to kind of remind yourself that everybody's different. Everybody's career is different. Oh, absolutely. So that's a bit of advice I'm throwing out there. <laughs> oh, no, that's very, very welcome. Yeah. One thing you said earlier uh, really sparked my curiosity, which was you yeah. said you've been working on a new way of working. And I yes. wanted to hear more about that. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I, my, um, well, I've done all sorts of weight, different, different methods of working. So painting um, and printmaking and collage and then when I was on my MA I pretty much taught myself to use Photoshop um, which I kind of progressed to work in or more so what I tended to do was work have all the textures that I'm hand make either by painting or rubbings or printmaking which I then scan in and I've got a bank that I then use for my stories so there's probably similarity in some of my books there will be the same 
backgrounds on same mm. certain elements that I've used in each of the books. People wouldn't notice, but obviously I know. Um, so I was doing a lot of that and then doing some drawings, scanning those in and then kind of collaging over the top on Photoshop. So what I've started to do is lino cuts, so actual printmaking mm. with lino. Um, and then I haven't got that far on it. It was life to be very busy. But my intention is to do that and blend that with kind of collage. So making more actual physical proper work handmade rather than working on the computer. That said, <laughs> this new project, although I'm going to approach it slightly differently, I'm going to be doing a lot of that, I think, on the computer. Because it is so convenient. It's, it's you know, you can, yeah, it's it's an e easier or can be an easier way, especially if you've got a small, I've only got a small house, so I've not got a huge amount of space to store pictures and paintings and stuff. But I want to blend using the computer more with actual handmade work. So, yeah, so that's the way in which I'm kind of changing and developing Um yeah, my style. I think it's important to keep going. Oh, definitely. You know, and, and change and change things a bit if you can. It makes things fun. Lino well. is so cool. For those who don't know what Lino cut is, can you describe the process a little bit? Yeah, well, it's like drawing with a knife. So what's not to love with that? That's very <laughs> fun. Yeah, so basically there are different types of Lino. So you can get kind of battleship grey one that's got hessian on the back, which is hard. That's quite good for detail. You can get vinyl, which is a bit kind of softer. Um, and basically what you do is you um, cut an image kind of into that. It's relief printing. Um, and you're kind of doing it in reverse. So you have to get your head around it. So you're cutting light into, with all the cuts that you do, you're adding light. And what is left will be the dark areas, if you saw what I mean. Um, I, I've been looking at Angela Harding and reading her books. She's, I really like her work um, and kind of learning quite a lot from, from looking at her work. Um, so I recommend her if anybody's interested um, and then from that what you do is create a print so you can roll up ink you roll it over the surface um, and then either with um, depending on the size of it really I've got a little printing press called a pookie press um, but you can also use even a back of a span uh, uh, sorry a back of a spoon just to rub it um, so you would put your ink on the lino onto your image and then you print that onto paper put it off and you've got the lovely image on there so yeah it's a nice uh, kind of old-fashioned way of working actually it's quite it's quite pleasurable but the inking and the print print making bit is a bit on the messy side so I'm always a bit like oh yep. god I've got to print it I really but I do enjoy doing the actual cuts that's quite good fun drawing oh, with yeah. a knife yeah I like that it's great and then the, just the amount of detail you can get is is surprising yeah. Yeah, again, things I think like the Battleship Grey one, you can get more detail because it's harder. Um, so you can get, yeah, you can get some really fine, lovely details with it. Yeah, it's nice. Oh, hello, I've got a dog here. Hello, oh. I've got two whippets called Alice and Olive. Oh. I've come to say hello. Hello, you. Adorable. Yeah. I like a, I like <laughs> a dog. I like a dog visiting the show. Oh. They're necessary. I think they keep us sane as we're working on these crazy things. Yeah, definitely. And they get you out of the house as well. So I gave mine a quick walk before I came on here. Yeah. And uh, yeah, dodging the rain. But yeah, they're good to have. So if if someone is listening to this and they think, my God, I'm on fire. I must. Yeah. I must make children's books. Yeah. What What do you wish you had known when you started that you could pass on to them? 
Oh, I wish I'd known. Oh, to be resilient, you need to be really resilient and determined. You need to be able to communicate really well because you're obviously dealing with a lot of different people. Don't be too egotistical because and I think it's important that you have integrity and you'll stand up for your work, if you like. Um, I think I can be a little bit forceful if I really believe in something and the way that something needs to be done. Um, you've got to have respect for yourself, I think. You know, it can be quite easy to kind of, you know, sway with one. Everybody's got a different opinion. And I remember on my MA, what I tried to do was stick with more or less the same tutors because otherwise it was like, I'm going not that way and then that way and that way and that way. And you have to have listen to other people and take things on board, but also have conviction and belief in your own work and confidence in it. Um, so being resilient, being confident in your own work, being a good communicator. Um, I think I wish I'd known that it was really, really hard and that there would be a lot of heartbreak and a lot of difficulty. I have to say, I wish I'd read a book called Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. It's so of good. The, oh, my God. I've listened to that. I've actually got it on Audible and I've listened to it two, three times now. And I just thought um, when I've been lecturing in the past, I've said to my students, read this book because it, I think it really helps. It kind of lets you kind of lets you off the hook. And she's done a couple of, well, probably more than a couple, several um, really amazing uh, TED Talks as well, which are ju just blow your mind, which obviously she talks about some of those things, doesn't she, in the book. Um, so things like that are really good. Um, and, I mean, some people really like uh, things like the Society of Children's Book Illustrators, Authors and Illustrators. It's not quite my thing. I don't love that kind of thing. I think I'm a little bit, I like kind of figuring stuff out for myself a little bit more. And I think, again, it comes to then listening to lots of different people's opinions. I find it a bit mind-blowing. Um, so I prefer kind of keeping things tight. And I, I also feel like the time that I could be, the same as social media, the time that you could be on social media, you could actually be making more work. And it's come sometimes difficult to work out, prioritise what the best thing to do is. But I think really for me, it always comes down, if I can, to making new work in some way and kind of exploring different ways of working and experimenting um but yeah kind of all that kind of stuff really um learn as much as you can I think if you can do something like um particularly the Cambridge School of Art one that I did um that's the one really and I think that I don't think I would have had any type of career without that because you just learn so much and there's a lot of prestige surrounding the course so I think all that kind of thing helps I think if publishers know you've done that MA, they know you're going to know your stuff. And obviously it's like learning to drive, <laughs> you know, you learn so much more once you've pubbed, once you're actually out there doing it yourself. Um, That's true. And having, having support around you and people that you can talk to. I've got one of my friends, Rachel Stubbs, um, who did the red hat. Um, we did the MA together and we tried to talk on Zoom and, and chat quite often as well. And I've got various other illustrator, author, illustrator friends that I chat to as well. Um, to kind of get in the support as well is good. And there are organisations like uh, Orange Beak um, and um, Dog Eared, which is run by Pam Smyre, who teaches on the MA. She's amazing. Um, so she does things like that. And they actually, in terms of um, an agent, uh, I certainly know that Orange Beak have somebody that will look, as have the AOI, the Association of Illustrators, who will look over contracts for you. Because I think that can be an area where, you know you could get caught out so yeah that again yeah. They're, they're useful resources definitely 
Yeah, there's so much. We could probably do a whole conversation about ways contracts are changing now in the days of AI and other things oh, with God. visual and writing <laughs> artists and how complicated yeah. it's become. So terrifying. Yeah. It yeah. is. But at the same time, like if you have support to at least consult with, or if you have someone who can look it over and make sure that you're protecting yourself, I think yeah. as a visual artist, but also as a writer, it's essential. Mm. It, yeah, it really is. Yeah. Because also it's quite a solitary, quite a solitary job. So and very often artists and illustrators are doing other jobs like I am. You know, you do other things as well. And actually that's good because you um can meet other people and that can be your social interaction. That's what I I find from doing various, I've done quite a lot of teaching um and you know, other things. And I think having that social contact with people, especially if they're creative people. Um, can really help can really help definitely because this yeah. is a weird thing that we do making books it is a weird thing yeah it is but it's necessary absolutely yeah and what better than to I mean I don't know what kind of a human I would be without books I don't think I would function and so to be able I to can't. create something that helps children connect with that from the beginning is so wonderful well absolutely I mean yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I just remember taking my kids to the library and then coming back with hordes of books. And I've got photos of them <laughs> sit, sitting on the sofa with books all over them. And my daughter, my my eldest daughter, Zoe, she's just started doing the MA in creative writing at the, at the oh, University of East Anglia in amazing. Norwich. Yeah, really amazing. I'm exceedingly proud of her. But she will say, you know, her memories of childhood were just stories and books and and, you know, they would sit and listen to these stories. And they definitely had a huge impact on her and her writing. So, yeah, it's it's so important. And especially in schools now where, you know, not every primary school has a library, um, you know, funding. I mean, like everything else in our country, quite frankly, is a fucking shit show um, and shameful in so many ways. Um, I'm quite angry about it. And, uh, and the fact that ag- yeah, education, I have no uh... idea what it's like in in Berlin, or I suspect it's a whole lot better than it is here. But arts are not valued, and it makes me sick because where the hell do they think we'd have anything? Where would this computer come from? Where would this table come from? Where would that piece of furniture? Where would anything come from if we didn't have art? Yes. And in the UK, you know, we're absolutely renowned for our arts, our music industry, acting, all of it. And yet it is not valued by our government said fucking idiots it yeah. makes me mad funding to the arts and to art colleges unis slashed you know i mean it's it, it's crazy um they should just be investing in it so much more because Agreed. it's so important and it's so important for our economy which is what everybody's always most excited and is apparently the most important thing is money not in my opinion but, you know, just, you know, for that, okay, you've ticked that box. Look at how successful our creative industries are. Brilliant. That box is ticked. Now, what about all those people there that maybe don't fit into that box of being really good at maths or engineering or science? Those people over there are, and that's brilliant. That's great. Let's support them. Let's support the creative people too. Yes. Because they're, you know, when you've got suicide rates going up, mental health, you know, mental health of children, all that kind of thing, if they have music. I mean, music is so important, so important for, for culture, 
oh god <laughs> it makes me mad and yet no it makes me mad oh, too it's oh it's secondary I don't think so so yeah as I say I have no idea what it's like for your for your readers or not your readers your listeners or where they're where they're based but yeah I just find it absolutely shameful but I find there's quite a lot shameful about our country really and what's going on there's a lot next year thank god (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot there's a lot to be to be talking about on that front in the U.S. as well um I bet oh yes isn't there just Yes. Isn't there oh, just? God. Yeah, that would be several more hours. But I think yeah. I, I can't speak to Germany so much, but they, from what I can see, it is better here. Yeah, I bet it is. I bet it is. I wouldn't be at all surprised. Yeah. And there are also the, the other thing that I love about Germany is that um, I may have shared this on the show before, but I'm sharing it again because I think mm. it's worth repeating. Um, you know how there's this phenomenon in um, crime and thriller writing where people their author names are like initials and then a last name. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then a lot of women who write thriller will do that because they don't necessarily want the reading public to know that it's, whether it's written by a woman or a man, because they Mm -hmm. think, oh, people won't necessarily do that. But I know a mystery writer who was translated into German and they said, no, we can't use the initials. We have to use your full name because people love women writers here so much. This is wow. an asset and it would be a waste for us to use initials. And that wow. has made me so proud ever since. Yeah, absolutely. Bloody hellfire. I know. It's amazing, isn't it? But I think that the important thing is that with all of this going on, I think the stories and particularly children's books and, and books that people read early in life are even more important than they've been before. So that yeah. above everything else even if it is as you said really really hard to get through yes. it matters it really matters yeah and you have to be passionate and one of the stories I'm working on at the moment is about the environment and um and I really really want to get that published I'm just trying to kind of get the artwork together for it now um and get it out. I've got a couple of ideas publisher wise. It's been rejected by a couple, but I'm working on it slightly differently now as well. So I don't know if I'll reapproach reapproach them or what I'll do. I'm not not quite sure. But I so hope that, you know, it can be published. Um, I hope so too. Yeah. Keep us posted. Fingers crossed, I will. I will. Well Joe, I can't thank you enough for, for coming on and talking about all of this with us. It was such a lovely opportunity good stuff thank you so much tired of ads interrupting your favorite show good news Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free fitness to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. Today, we discuss Miro. Listen, when it comes to running client workshops, the dream, of course, is to get those creative juices flowing, right? But typically what ends up happening is thousands of hours get wasted because of poorly facilitated meetings. So I have Maya with me today. She's a consultant who runs Fortune 100 workshops from leadership training to team building, and she has the insider tip on what makes things work. Maya? Thank you, Jason. I've been doing this a long time. My number one tip is to bring everyone into that visual collaboration platform. So personally, I use Miro and it's completely changed how I interact with the room. You have to give people a way to feel like they're in the room, even when they're not. That's something you can do easily in Miro. Otherwise, they've seen the same slides and format thousand times. Falling asleep, eyes glazing over, yawns, all that. Exactly. When people follow me on the Miro board, everyone is literally going on a journey with me. We're adding thoughts, we're reacting, and we're voting for the best ideas. It's great. Connective magic. I like it. That's M-I-R-O dot com.